Welcome to the Van City Church Podcast. The following is a one-off guest teaching from Bethany Allen. Can it live there? Can it be there? Music people? I don't want to break anything. I'm going to do this too because I'm over 30. Uh, it's hard to believe, I know, but I can't see things right now. I have an eye doctor appointment this week. Um, I, I feel like it's funny because Josh was at Bridgetown this morning and we were there. We were in a new venue. It was weird. And he did this whole like um, chart of how many times he's been at Bridgetown since he's been at Van City. It's been a long time. It's nine times. So I asked him, I said, if you've been at Bridgetown nine times, how many times have I been at Van City? And he's like, seven. So that's pretty impressive, and there was like these rankings of Chevy Chase and Tom Hanks, and you'll have to ask him about it, but um, so I'm like, I'm quickly approaching, which I felt really great about. Um, also, if you know, uh, when I'm around here, I am usually, I have some kind of ailment going on. Do, always, generally, I'm on NyQuil or something just fun for you guys. Well, uh, it turns out I had oral surgery on Friday, so I'm here with another ailment. So if I start bleeding mid-talk, um, just... Give me a wave or a wiggle or whistle, and I will try to wipe it up and keep going. Uh, I just feel like I should. You know what I mean? If I'm coming to Van City, I should have some sort of ailment, and so I do. Uh, so truly, I won't be bleeding, hopefully, but uh, it's possible. It is possible. Um, okay, let's actually get into text uh, tonight. Um, I want to just share with you. I was. I had Josh said you can just do whatever you want, which I was like, yes. Just let me do whatever I want. Um, and the truth is, uh, the last couple months, I've been forced to meditate on some scriptures. <laughs> so uh, spiritual leadership is going well, if you're wondering. And uh, I've been meditating on some passages from the Psalms, um, choosing that and choosing to kind of uh, seat myself in those. And I've done this uh, largely because I've um, just been in a really weird place, and I've just felt like I really needed some truth. I've needed some comfort, I've needed some help, and um, the truth is I've felt really overwhelmed lately emotionally and spiritually, and I just need, needed some kind of assistance. Do you ever get those places where you're just kind of like, I'm just like overstimulated by the world and my internal world, both? Anybody? Yes, and I'm a feeler, so I'm feeling everything constantly. Um, and the truth is, I think part of the ache I've been feeling is not just what's happened in my own life, walking through some grief and different things like that, but it's also come from just our world at large, the political season, just what a, what a joy that has been uh, for so many of us. Uh, the sense of injustice and loss, it just felt so severe in this season. I've just felt really impacted by what's happening in the world, was impacted deeply today to hear about Kobe Bryant's passing and his 13-year-old daughter dying tragically in a helicopter crash. It's just, this kind of thing's just, it feels like it's every day. It's something every day. It's just kind of been weighing on me. And so I've been trying to bring it to the Lord. Um, But it has felt like a season where um, everything just kind of feels like it's unraveling or falling apart. Anybody else? Just a little bit of an unraveling, at least for me. And and I know you go in and out of seasons of this, but for me, it's just felt like a falling apart season that life has been a bit more of a a tragedy than it has been a comedy. And um, I know that isn't new. I know we go through seasons uh, where we feel tragedy and injustice and suffering in unique ways. But for some reason, uh, this season for me personally has felt like it's just this ever-growing reality. And I've been perplexed at what to do with it. And what to do with it in light of being a Jesus person, in light of being a pastor, in light of serving people. It's just been a a little bit of a confusing place. And I I wonder tonight if maybe some of you have been in that that space, whether it's global for you and it's other people out here or it's personal 
uh, for you. I wonder if uh, maybe you feel that way because of something you've experienced recently or personally, and it's impacted you, or maybe you are experiencing, like I'm experiencing the political climate and other things, or you've been listening to podcasts that are just like hyper-depressing or whatever, but you're kind of in that space. And I think it's fair to say, and it's nothing new, that for those of us who have a pulse, we know at least at some level things aren't as they should be. And I think that's the ache that I've been feeling, that there is a, an age-old, intrinsic, deep ache and darkness in the world around us. And if you aren't deeply connected to what I'm talking about, you're like, I was in such a good place, and now you're doing all this. Um, and maybe you're not able to enter into what I'm talking about. I just want to share some statistics with you to bring you down with the rest of us. So uh, is that okay? Great. So buckle up. Sadness train coming your way. Uh, a study published uh, recently found that 60%, just to give you a, a perspective of some of the things I'm holding, um, found that 60% of people will experience at least one year of poverty in their lifetime. Um, a few years ago, more than 736 million people lived below the international poverty line, which is tragic. Uh, on top of that, we know that 10% of the world population is, as we speak, living in extreme poverty and struggling to fulfill the most basic needs like health, education, access to water, and sanitation. We also know that one in every 108 people globally are either asylum-seeking or internally displaced or labeled as refugees leaving hundreds and thousands of people with the realities and conditions of helplessness very few of us in this room could even imagine. In 2019, it was reported that one in three women have or will experience sexual assault or sexual violence in their lifetime. And in the U.S. alone, as of November of last year, just a few months ago, the latest count of mass shootings in our country was up to 366. Just to name a few things. Again, to brighten your Sunday afternoon, that's what pastors are here to do. All of it to say, this stuff, all this muck and mire of stuff around us is an indicator to us that the world is broken. And justice for those of us who live in this world is no longer a novelty or a new idea. In fact, it is a commonality, and it's a commodity used in our world today. It's brokered by evil itself. And the exposure to this kind of darkness or injustice or evil, while shocking and provocative to the spirit, especially the Christian spirit, has a way of moving so many of us from a place of lament and grief and frustration to angst and anger and sadly even apathy. Now, I don't imagine I'm alone in feeling fatigued by the effects of it all. Even today, when I was reading about Kobe Bryant, I was just like, God, I mean, just okay. I'm weary, and as much as I hate to admit it, even numb to the images of loss, devastation, and hopelessness. So with all of that, it seems to me that the question I can't help but ask, what we can't help but ask, probably even in a deeper way than we have in seasons past, is where is God in it all? That really has been the question I've been asking. I'm a pastor. I get paid a million dollars a year. <laughs> no, I don't. Keep your giving up, you know? But I get paid to really hold up this banner of God's faithful, and he's good, and he's unrelenting, and his promise to us. But in all of this, recently, I've been asking, where are you in it all? Where, in the language of the prophet Amos and the prophet Martin Luther King Jr., does justice roll down like a river? And will there be an end to this senseless reality of this evil? I hope so. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 10. Today we're going to look at a text that echoes some of these questions that I've mentioned, and more than that, I think, brings validation and vindication to the longing we feel for the world to be made right, whether that's personal for you tonight or more global. Now, as you're turning to Psalm chapter 10, it's right in the middle of your Bible, so if you're like, I'm not sure, just 
right in the middle and then a little bit to the left. Um, just as you're turning, a few things to keep in mind. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers. They all come from is Israel's history with a million different authors. Don't quote me on that. That's not accurate. Uh, Psalm chapter 10 specifically, many scholars believe, was written by King David himself and is a poem of lament. Now, lament, I know is you guys are familiar with that, but simply put, it's a prayer to God expressing pain and confusion and anger while at the same time asking God to do something about it. The Psalms have this beautiful way of both teaching and at the same time inviting us to not ignore the pain in our lives or the world around us, but to actually welcome it and in that allow ourselves to be called forward into something greater. So with that, would you look down with me at verse 1? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now, our text starts off with a cry. And it's a cry that echoes the prayer of many in times when injustice is prevailing. See, for many of us, the first thing we do, especially those of us who follow Jesus in times of injustice, is look to the one who can end it. Right? That's our, our MO. We look to the one who can actually do something about it. And yet, just like it feels for so many of us in the depths of our pain and trials, there seems to be, the author implies, a distance between God and the evil and the suffering at hand. Even an inactivity of the only one who can actually vindicate and rescue. And so the first line of our text quickly draws us to the heartache, the frustration, the prayer of David as he calls out to God. Why do you stand so far off? Or maybe better said, why do you hide when we need you the most? In verse 2, we find David revealing to us the why behind his despair and more specifically his questioning of God's presence amidst it. He first introduces us to this idea of the wicked and almost in a manner of examination paints for us a picture of what this kind of person looks like threaded through it all, we find this theme of pride and arrogance. The wicked man, we're told, or better said, the wicked or the, the enemy, referring to those who provoke injustice or practice evil. They believe that they have not only the ability, but at some level the right, we're told, to hunt down the, the uh, weak. Now, you wouldn't maybe know this, but uh, the weak here in Hebrew is better defined as the afflicted those who are in need, those who are already operating from a place of deficit, meaning the wicked goes after those who are already low, those who are already desperate, those who are vulnerable in really specific ways, and in that then they inflate both their power and their influence through preying on the vulnerable, allowing the wicked then to exploit and monopolize their weakness for the sake of their own deceptive work. Now, the text goes on in verses 3 and 4 to illuminate the deception of this evil one that reveals his arrogance as provocative, and it even takes this form of boasting in its own vileness, like, I'm gross, ha-ha, I'm so gross, right? That's kind of what the text is saying, revealing, that was not funny, that, so I won't do that again, uh, revealing that the wicked are so intoxicated and enmeshed by their own wickedness, but they can't help but talk about it. We're told the mark of the wicked will be that they both bless and encourage those around them who are greedy, pushing others into their own way of thinking. And at the same time, we're told they revile Yahweh or God. And they'll be the kind of people who launch mocking and angry insults at him and tell others not to seek him. This, once again, emphasizing the delusion of what the wicked's own arrogance has produced. Are you tracking? 
this is going to be interesting, and then it'll get better. Are you with me? I mean, it's good, but we're, gonna, we're doing a deep dive into Psalm 10, and only the hard parts. Verse 5. Now, more about the wicked, because you're interested, right? Yeah. It's like, tell me more about wicked people. I can't get enough. His ways, the wicked, are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do harm to me. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. The psalmist continues on in a sort of protest to God. And he says, not only do the wicked practice wickedness, but they even prosper while they do those things. Do you know those kind of people? Ugh. I mean, real, some of you are in the room. <laughs> And, and we get that, don't we? Not the room. Uh, we look around at our world and we see those who are inflicting the most injustice still prospering, still living by means many of us will never know, still going unpunished and unrecognized, and it's their prospering that seemingly perpetuates their drive towards more. It's their freedom that gives, us, gives them almost a confidence to keep on doing what they were doing. And as we read on, we read that the wicked, they're not even afraid of their enemies, they're not afraid of anyone. As we once again read in their pride, they declare that they can't be shaken. No harm can come to them. The pride making them unwilling to recognize any need for God, unwilling to see sin as it really is, unwilling to care for the other, unwilling to find life through repentance, marks that many of us understand, places that many of us understand. And it's these declarations that provide us insight into the frightening fearlessness and dangerous egotism of those in this camp. Verse 7, in the former verse, the writer had described the wicked's feelings or the conditions of their heart, like their cravings and their greed and their schemes. But now he proceeds to specify the open acts of the wicked, with the wicked being described as people who are profane in language as well as heart. Imagery that highlights for us the idea that is whatever is within your heart will be exposed in due time for what it actually is. And most of us know that this comes from the scriptures. We even read when Jesus was talking about it, that what, what comes out of the mouth is what's already in the heart. For the wicked, we're told this will emanate and manifest as threats and commands that are unjust and unreasonable and oppressive. Okay, good? A little bit more and then that's it, okay? Then I'll, then I'll shout about some other things. Verse 8, let's keep reading about the wicked because he is fascinating and uplifting. Now, the wicked, we're told, lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. The author moves on to describe what the wicked do, what their objective is. And what we find in these verses is a reality check for many of us. The author tells us that wicked people are those who in so many words are predators, looking for prey, looking at the vulnerable as a means of opportunity and exploitation for their own benefit. Once again, revealing their depravity and their way of life. The wicked's lives, we read, are marked by secrecy and concealment, revealing to us, the reader, that the wicked are intentional and precise in their efforts, leaving their prey even more vulnerable and susceptible to their violence, a thought that undoubtedly makes many of us cringe and yet at the same time breathe a petition for God's mercy. In verse 11, we find a bit of an interjection by our author, and in it we almost hear his angst and disgust as he declares that once again, 
and arrogant. Once again, that the wicked and arrogance justifies their behavior by declaring that God will never notice and God will never see. And it's almost as if the author is saying, this is how it feels. This is how it feels. As he ends his first refrain of this passage with with the same cry as when he first started. This cry of God, where are you? Now, I know many of you didn't think you were going to come to church tonight and read a really depressing text about wicked people. But here you are. You have no choice. You're trapped. And I'm your teacher for tonight. And I have a point in all of this, I promise. In a world like ours and in a room like this, there's no doubt we can sit here in full agreement with the author and say, yes, God, where are you? Injustice and evil in our own personal lives and in the world around us are pervasive. The people to your right and to your left tonight have experienced that at some level today, had some kind of encounter with it. See, this uh, lament echoes in so many ways the often unspoken ache of our hearts Because what we see and feel around us is not a set of moral or ethical crises as much as they are markers of a spiritual crisis. A crisis, though often viewed as an intense time of difficulty and trouble, is also a place in which the most important decisions are made. Meaning crisis is actually the fulcrum point of our lives many times. The pivotal and catalyzing point of turning that by the way, historically has been the gateway for both personal and corporate revival. The problem, however, is that we have a tendency in these places, whether it be because of exhaustion or discouragement or hopelessness or the crushing reality of the load in which evil is prevailing, to want to escape, right? To to move away from a thing that's uncomfortable and as a means of survival in times of injustice, to want to divide our faith from our ethics to retreat from the horror of it all into the solace of personal religion, to respond by retreating to our comfortable worlds, ultimately revealing to us the disproportionate reality of our faith in light of the suffering and hopelessness, both in the room and around the world. It's clear from our text that we, no matter our response, are at war with evil, and it's personal. No matter how much we avoid or we minimize our encounter with injustice in this world is imminent. Whether it be through a diagnosis or a water crisis, we will be confronted with its realities day in and day out. And so my question for us, for me tonight, is what will we do? What will you do? And how will we, as the church of Jesus, respond? C.S. Lewis once said that the forces of spiritual evil are most effective when when people either make too little or too much of them. And if this is true, then we have a responsibility as God's people to take a fearless inventory of our hearts, to put away sentimentality and anger and fear and to face up to the work of the enemy, to lean back on this great paradox of our faith that God himself is made manifest precisely in the darkness of our lives and of this present age, to allow wickedness and evil and suffering to propel us into an even deeper awareness and solidarity with, he, with humanity's experience with pain and darkness. And at the same time as people who follow Jesus to move towards a provocative protest against suffering as our Messiah Jesus did. To mimic over and over again the moment when majesty stooped low. Where grief and pain and injustice were not only acknowledged by Jesus but shared by him 
to incarnate and believe the profession of our faith that says in the language of scholar Fleming Rutledge that both the wrath and love of God has the power to break and silence the cycle of injustice once and for all. But the question, if you're anything like me, is how do we do this? I mean, that all sounds great. Here I am shouting at you and calling you to arms and being like, suck it up and do something awesome. But honestly, how do we actually do this? It's easy for me to shout things at you and it's easy for you to receive them with so much joy as I can see on your faces. But it's a whole other thing to do something about it, to actually respond. Yes, we get the ache, but what does it mean for us really? So many of you know these things firsthand. Even as I was preparing this teaching, I was trying to think of each of your faces. Sometimes I ask God to do that. Would you show me who's in the room? Don't be freaked out. He really didn't show me a lot of specifics. But I wondered what kind of space you'd be in when the word was being given. You would just be like, this is so obnoxious, or like, this is so exhausting, or this is so awesome, or I'm barely keeping it together, or whatever it may be. And I, I prepared this knowing full well that many would come this evening at the, at the end of the day, all too familiar with the ache of the psalmist. Maybe you don't have language for it, but maybe you are familiar with that ache that the psalmist talks about. Fleming Rut Rutledge says that the resistance to the power of evil and sin is central to the Christian identity. And if that's true, then we have work to do. Even on the very first pages of our Bible, we learn that God is able to overturn the forces of evil and bring good into being. And while we know that unaided humans can not really make lasting headway against evil, we know that partnership with God, who can, changes everything. But just like our psalmist, partnering with God and getting face-to-face -face with him in protest or in prayer against injustice or against evil or against suffering is an act that for many of us in the room will be revealing. And that's what's been happening to me. It's been a revealing season. Revealing in that we will see and know firsthand what we actually believe about God in moments like this. This is what I've been up against. This is kind of the, the rub right now in my own life. Does God actually do the impossible? I mean, really. And again, I get paid a million dollars a year to believe that he does. But I'm asking these questions. I do not get paid a million dollars a year. But man, that'd be nice, huh? Some of you, bless you. Um, you know, I'm asking these questions. Does God do the impossible? And I've seen him do it. Today, someone who couldn't get pregnant forever got pregnant. You know, that crap's happening. I'm standing there in the audience just Bleh, like, you know, it's like I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like I'm just weeping at God's goodness. It's a miracle. He's doing this crap all the time. And yet I was preparing for this teaching going, do you do the impossible? I mean, really? Because when it gets to my life, it's a whole other story. He does it for you, but he doesn't do it for me. Anybody? Okay, no. Just me. Do I actually believe he's able to set the captive free? Really? from addiction, those people we know who have been suffering in our church family for years. Do you really do it, God? Are you actually able to end injustice through the coming of the inbreaking kingdom? Can you actually heal somebody's body, ridding them of disease once and for all? Can you actually restore the years that the locust ate? Really? And provide homes for those who don't have them? Can you really do these things? Set against the backdrop of injustice, our faith with all its potency and failings will be revealed. How we view God and how we express to ourselves and to others our understanding of who he is and how he works, it will all be on display. Central to every psalm is a moment when the author confronts who they're talking to. And you'll notice there are these explosions of emotions on the front end of the text and then... 
a moment where the tone begins to change and the mood shifts and we find the author now aware of whose presence he's in. What is revealed after lament is expressed and you become aware of who you are really before. Who is this God really? And it's not until that we've answered the, the hard questions and wrestled through them that we can become people who are actually fortified and ready to work against the evil around us. That we will, we're able to become people who can actually hold up good news with faith, whether it be through prayer or protest or some kind of big extraordinary measure. We're not able to do those things until we've allowed the revealing to happen. The problem is many of us don't even get to this point. We get uncomfortable and blame it on somebody else. God's word isn't, isn't able to answer this, so it must be its problem. God didn't do the thing, so it must be his problem. They didn't have enough faith, which is why it didn't happen, so it's their problem. This revealing is an extraordinary and necessary part of being people who are actually able to lean into and understand and wrap our hearts around the things that we're feeling, the injustice we're encountering. It's necessary for the journey. And in, it's in this place that our hearts actually shift and change directions. Things are revealed, and then we are actually prepared to do work. We're actually, what I would say, reoriented to something else, hopefully. Now, when I say reoriented or reorientation, I don't simply mean a, a change in direction, like a 30-degree shift. I mean a complete change of our focus and our direction. This likened to the shift that takes place when you come into the kingdom of God, a shift as dramatic as death to life, because that's what's necessary when we're entering into places of suffering and injustice. But what's important to notice is that this reorientation doesn't happen automatically. It's in this space of revealing that we're actually confronted with a crisis of sorts, or maybe better said, a choice. A choice of which direction we will choose to go. When confronted with these realities, confronted with our questions, confronted with, is God able, and am I able to believe him for these things, and he said this, but will he really do this? It's in this place that we actually have a choice. Historically, both crisis and choice are the impetus God uses to usher in movements of both personal and corporate renewal. Do you hear a theme here? This is the hope. Reorientation, then, is a holy moment for the disciple. Not something to be afraid of, but something to actually be embraced. Though maybe not marked by a grand reveal or an encounter with a bunch of angels, which would freak me out, it's still pivotal in nature. It's essential for the disciple of Jesus. Will we or won't we allow what has been revealed in us and around us to transform us, to catalyze in us something extraordinary or otherworldly? Or will we continue to hide and avoid and ultimately transmit the evil and its effects by turning away? Which is what happens, by the way. We, we transmit that which we don't transform. You've heard this a thousand times and better said than that. The invitation of this reorientation is a profound gift in its nature because it doesn't simply affect your experience or your feelings about the world around you. It is actually the birthplace of kingdom realities. Kingdom life, now actually able to flow through you. you we all, all wait for something to happen to us, but in this space, something is happening through us which means that lives will be changed. If it's a kingdom reality, it means lives are actually changed. Destinies are inaugurated, and generations begin to find freedom that they wouldn't have otherwise known because of our faithfulness. That's what happens in this space. Reoriented hearts call us to align ourselves with God and his purposes. And it's in this place that we let go of old identities and old narratives, and we learn new ways of waiting on God.
that's that shift. Some of you are in that. You're in your discipleship of Jesus, and it's like, I feel like I've already learned to wait on God, and I'm doing it again. But I'm like wildly impatient, very much like a toddler. I mean, I just feel like we were having it out this morning. I put on my makeup. I'm like, you're ridiculous. This waiting thing is garbage. I mean, we're just in a marriage fight today. If I'm honest, I'm getting up here in a fight, and he knows it. It's fine. My husband, my husband, God, not, oh, I don't have one, another real husband in a body form uh, yet. So all to say, that's, that's kind of the place where I'm at. I'm, go, I'm wrestling through these questions going, are you reorienting me or not? I have to let go of these old ways of thinking that were good. You would be impressed by them. You'd be like, man, she is awesome. She's a pastor. She gets paid a million dollars a year to do what she's doing. And it makes a lot of sense to me, but there are those he's even jealous for. There's other things I can't carry into this new space. The reorientation doesn't allow them to come through because they won't sustain me in the deeper places. And for some of you, God is after that. He's doing that deeper work. And hear me, it is disruptive. Reorientation is a disruption to the core of your life, and it's supposed to. If you're going to be able to hold all that God has, disruptive, yes, but it is also a gateway for you to embody the person and the incarnational realities of Jesus, your Messiah. That's what this is for. And and it, it also allows you to hold within your body new ways of him expressing his work here on this earth. Reoriented hearts, once they're kind of configured, I imagine, are hopeful and creative and holistic in their response to the world around them. And they are the birthplace of true transformation in the kingdom of God into deeper ways, into deeper wells of understanding and knowledge. But we're not just done yet. Reorientation isn't sufficient. We have to be people who can be reoriented and then that keep going. You know, it's one thing to have things revealed, and it's another thing to have things, you know, kind of reoriented and rearranged, and that's where I'm at. I'm in the second point. I'm like, I don't even know, am I doing it right? What's happening? So I haven't even moved on to this point, but I'm going to preach it in faith. Is that okay? Great, because you've got to do something else. This is going to be a long road, because that's the thing. That's the frustrating thing about the kingdom of God. It's the long obedience in the same direction, everybody. And it's like the scenery sucks sometimes, and you want out. And it's in this moment that we need something called resilience. And Mark Sayers is brilliant, and he talks about this a ton. If you haven't read his books, you should. He's a dear friend of mine. And um, we, yeah, no, but we are sort of friends. We would definitely, we're friends. We're friends, Mark, if you're listening. We're totally friends. This idea of resilience is something he introduced to my life, and it is something that has been so provocative to me that I have been yet to embrace it, wondering if I am actually resilient as he defines it. Resilience, by its definition, points us not just to a momentary response or practice, but an entirely new way of life together. And you can go, well, that's life in the kingdom. Sure it is, on round one. But if you're on round 97, it feels different. Do you know what I mean? Because we're constantly being remade in the kingdom of God. Resilience is this capacity and the ability to recover and regain footing and strength quickly despite difficult or trying situations. And it's not like a game, you know, like how fast can I recover from this horrible thing that happened in my life? It's not what it's about. Resilience is this ability to keep going even when garbage is coming your way. To look forward beyond your circumstances, whatever they may be, to God's redemptive purposes. Those are the people who are actually resilient. The imagery is that of something like an obstacle course. It's this idea that you're not only overcoming a challenge, but you're also being strengthened by it. In layman's terms, it means being tough in all the right ways, strong in all the right ways. And it's what's required as we move forward into confronting injustice in our own life and in the lives around us. It's necessary for those of us who want to be marked by God's power 
by his strength, by his goodness. It's what we need if we're going to move forward in this specific cultural moment, in this specific city, in this specific time, and in this specific place. But the question still remains, what does it mean to be resilient people, specifically with where we're at, with all that's going on in our political crisis and the world falling apart and all of that? Hearts have been revealed and reoriented and now we're ready to move ahead as resilient people. In theory, that'd be a good idea, but how do we do it? And I have a few thoughts, and I'm done. Sound good? What are, oh, there's a clock up here. I'm doing a really good job. Usually I teach for like an hour and a half, so you guys are only another 45 minutes and we'll be out of here. All right. So let's talk about it. How do we become resilient people? I think it's this shift, a couple shifts. I think it happens when we move from being spectators to contributors. So injustice and in pain, even within our own life, even with your own life, think about the thing, the hard thing right now. It's easy to be a spectator of it, to observe it, to look at it, to lament about it, to ache about it, to be frustrated about it, to, to be mad at everyone else about it. Do you know what I mean? To, to stay on the sidelines and be like, that sucks, or whatever. That's the worst. See, this is in my yard. This is garbage. Who put this here? Who did this? And the only way we become resilient people, by the way, this is another, word, another word for this is maturity. The way we become mature in Christ kind of people is when we move from being spectators to something that's a horrible thing that's happening in the world. Yikes, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. Moving on. Is when we move from being people who are on the sidelines and we move into the field. It's no longer observing the work of injustice in our lives, but actually participating in it. Getting in there and getting dirty, which some of you means if it's a personal matter, it means you're going to have to get dirty about your own self, about what's really going on inside of you, jealousy, frustration, anger, disappointment, loss, whatever it may mean. You've got to get in there. You've got to move from being a spectator, someone who has great commentary about it, and move into the deeper places and ask the Lord, what's going on? How do I participate, Holy Spirit, with what you're doing in this place? And the same is true at a global level, at a local level in our community. God, what do we do about the injustice that we're seeing? Instead of watching, we then enter in. And some of you, I mean, this is, I love you, this is not my community, in this, I mean, we're like family. Um, but, but I'm going to say something. In your family, there are people that are suffering that you haven't entered into because you just don't know what the heck you're doing. It's not better. It's not better. You staying on the sidelines, it's not better than you getting in there. And that's what happens too in the family of God. We gotta move in, move out of the sidelines and into the lives of one another. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, you got that? Okay. Uh, now, so instead of that, we enter in. We enter into difficult situations. But you're a pastor, you're so brilliant at it. I know, thank you. Uh, and you get paid a million dollars, I do. So it's easy for me to enter into difficult situations, but it's not, it's not. This week alone, I moved a woman out of her house, went and saw a lawyer. She's, got a, she's in a dangerous situation. She's got to leave her house. That's not easy for me. It would be easy for me to be like, you've got to figure out how to get out of there, sweetie, because he's abusive, which I did say. This is dangerous now for you and your son. What are you going to do? But, but instead, I said, you know what? i got to do this. we got to do this together. She can't, we're not doing this by herself, so I'm going to the lawyer in my overalls, looking like a hillbilly. I mean, oh, my God, it was so embarrassing. My mother was like, what are you wearing? And the lawyer said, it's okay. I see all kinds of people. I thought, what are you? Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a pastor. Anyway, I can wear overalls. I just look cute, like a rain girl. <laughs> anyway, it was horrible, right? But we're getting, and the whole point is getting into it, all the way to the second that she left on Saturday morning. An act of bravery most of us will never encounter in our lives. Never, ever, ever. We don't know the cost. All I know is I was in it. 
All I know is I'm in it today. And the suffering, it's not bypassing me. It's not making me go like, oh, no problem. Sweet is safe now. It's no yeah, right. Entering in is costly to us. But it is what it means to be a part of the family of God. And hear me, if I wasn't her pastor, I would have done the same thing. The same exact dang thing. Well, yeah, you're trained. That's true. I am trained and I can train you. But it's still a part of who I am. We've got to enter into these situations. We've got to move from being spectators to things to people who are in the trenches. And it's going to cost you something. And it's going to be disruptive. But it is necessary if we're going to be resilient people in the kingdom of God. The only way you get unafraid is if you step into the afraid thing and you get unafraid. Do you know what I mean? That's a good, someone quote me, tweet me out. That's a very tweetable, untweetable thing. It means we're going to listen to each other. We're going to listen to each other's stories, even if we've heard them 65 times. I mean, God Almighty, please just start working on that individually in your own personal life. We're going to buy meals for people. I've had so many opportunities. I'm not bragging. I'm not doing a Jesus brag, I promise you. I have fed so many people this month. There have been so many hungry people around me. And I'm like finding them everywhere. I'm like, I am too poor for this. I only make $1 million a year, God. And no joke, they're everywhere. They're sitting behind me at Chick-fil-A. They're sitting next to me at Chick-fil-A. There's 16 people everywhere I go. I'm like, are you hungry? I don't have time. Here we go. And we're going to go eat a meal. And we're feeding people because that's what it means to do this. I've been trying to get this teaching in my body, and that's how we do it. We take the time to enter in, to move. And instead of being a spectator and going, man, I hope somebody feeds him. Man, I hope so. He looks hungry. He's just hungry. This sucker just wanted a loaf of bread. No problem. I got it. I get you six loaves. I don't know. It's an easy thing. It's an easy movement. But God has been saying, get in there and do it. I'm literally walked past this sucker. I mean, I'm like, no. I have got to get a kombucha. And I've got to go to this crisis situation for God. And I'm like going, and this guy's hungry. And I'm like, no. And I walk all the way in the store. And Jesus says, get your butt back there, you little bad sinner, in a nice way. <laughs> and I go back and I said, I'm so sorry. What is your name? And we talked. And I can't remember his name because I'm a bad pastor, but I, he was nice. And I said, what do you want? And it was freezing, and it was raining. And he's like, I just want some coffee and a loaf of bread. I said, what else do you want? Listen, I'm in trouble. Anything else I can get you? And he said, no. But anyway, all I have to say, I've had a lot of opportunities to feed a lot of people. That's what it means to get in it. It's been uncomfortable and not easy. And then at the same time, it's been so easy. Move from spectators to becoming contributors and see what happens to you when you do it. I was reminded, I have so much money. A loaf of bread, for me, nothing. It's nothing, it's unthinkable, it's so easy. And I'm like, what loaf, you know, like does he want multigrain? What if he gets diverticulitis? I don't know what's gonna happen, so no. I'm working through, and he doesn't even think about things like that. I think about things like that. The, the bounty of God's goodness in these spaces makes us learn how to be unafraid and to see people for who they really are and to love them and to name them and to bless them. This is what God's inviting us into. To be resilient people, you've got to move from spectating the world to contributing to it. And you're going to have to get unafraid along the way. Next, you've got to move from consuming to cultivating. We have to move from a, a posture of complacency to cultivation. Some of you are like, I've just plateaued with Jesus. Some of you just need to get your crap together and start p pursuing Jesus. That's it. I'm so sorry. You're like, I got to go. Uh, <laughs> and I get it. But you do. You got, I mean, some of us, it's just like, man, I don't know. I haven't done this certain thing, or I'm not experiencing what she's experiencing. I'm no more spiritual than anyone in this room, and probably a lot less 
but I'm trying to figure out what it means to move from being a consuming person, which I am a consumer, to someone who cultivates. We cultivate faith, and we do it by entering into these spaces where we, we need God to show up. We need him to make a way, and he does it. Some of you in this room are brilliant at that. You're just brilliant people who cultivate faith. We need homes. By the way, looking at all you have small humans everywhere. They're just everywhere in this community, and I love it. But I, I, when I think about this, I think about homes filled with kids who understand the realities of injustice and then know at the same time the power of the kingdom of God. That, that's what this means, to, to create consumers and to cultivate hearts of faith in the smallest of humans. Cultivate churches that become a refuge for people, a healing space for people, not a space where more brokenness is experienced. We become cultivators of peace. In every relationship, we, we strive to live at peace with all men and women. <laughs> Trust me, that's harder. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a joke. That's bad. I won't say that again. Cultivate peace in a space of hostility. We can do that. You carry the risen power of Jesus in you into your workplace, into your relationships. You fear no evil thing, the scripture tells us. Cultivate. Don't just consume what's there. Don't just settle for the complacent thing that's just right before you, the thing you've always done, whatever it is. Just strive, try in this season to cultivate something new with someone, just one other person. Pick a friend and say, I'm just going to cultivate faithfulness. I'm going to show up every week in their life. I'm going to cultivate encouragement. I'm just going to do that in this community. Every time I see someone, Katie, constantly. She's texting me 65 times before I get here, blessing the socks off me. Y'all know it. She's just this encourager who's out there just cultivating your community. She's just like... You know, there's every week like, you're awesome, you're wonderful, we love you so much, you're welcome here, we can't wait to get you coffee, special coffee, I remember what you want in your coffee. I mean, this sweetie is going, that's a woman who cultivates things in a community. That's profound. If she was gone, you'd be sad. I'd be sad. It would change things in the culture of this space. What are you contributing? What are you cultivating in this community, in this home, in your home, in your friendships, in your relationships? Move from just consuming what's here to cultivating something. We're going to need this if we're going to be able to endure what's coming and what is around us right now. Personally and globally, we need these realities. Cultivate kingdom of God realities. You can do it. It's not too hard. Trust me. Again, I'm doing it. And I get paid a million dollars a year. How many times can I say that? Six times? Finally. Seven. Hey, that was a funny joke from earlier. Anybody? You're connected? I feel like we're family here. I just feel like we're having conversations. Let's not put this on the podcast. <laughs> Finally, what I'm learning about resilient people is we only deconstruct to reconstruct. We reconstruct what the enemy has deconstructed. That is our job. We fight the narrative that deconstruction brings that something is weak because it can be parsed out, seen, or exposed. We recapture the beauty of vulnerability, not fearing exposure, but trusting that exposure in our own lives and in the faith that we hold will reveal an even greater reality and power. We reconstruct what is true and lovely and noble and honorable, and we rest in the strength of reconstruction, knowing that the structure is now tested, tried, and proven. Resilience is a prophetic movement and a marker for those of us who are hungry to see evil eradicated from this world and from our lives. And my friends, it is both a corporate effort and an individual effort. 
which means you'll have to participate in both for this reality to happen, which means you're going to have to have things revealed over and over again. You're going to have to have hearts that are reoriented over and over again. And you're going to have to become people who are resilient. You're active. You're action words kind of people in order that God would cultivate in you the things that need to be cultivated. It is going to require the voice of one, and it is going to require the voice of many. It is going to be faithfulness in really small moments. And it's going to be faithfulness in really big moments. Which means what we do with what is before you tonight. The pain, the loss, the suffering, the impact of evil in the world, it matters. It means that how we contend in these days against injustice and evil in our personal lives as well as the world around us will never compare to what we concede along the way. It means that while face-to-face with brokenness, we actually can have hope. For those of us who are in this community of faith, who say yes to Jesus, we do fear no evil thing. We fear even the worst can't touch us. We only fear God himself. And he is able, and if you man, go home, here's your reading assignment, and read the rest of Psalm 10. Because you'll read about the God who takes action, who moves on behalf of his people, who stirs them up and basically declares, the the psalmist David declares, he is able, he is the one, he is the king, the only one to whom we yield ourselves to because he's the only one who can fix all this garbage. And that's good. I don't have time because I want you to get home before your favorite show. But I just want to call us tonight to something deeper. That's my only hope. And really, I'm calling myself. Honestly, I told the Lord, even I was up in Josh's office, which it's dark, and then the paint needs to be fixed at the top of his. That's a a family community thing, conversation. Um, I was in there, and I was asking the Lord, man, I just said, I don't have anything today. I mean, I woke up all day. It was a continual conversation with God about how I don't understand how prayer works anymore. You're just kind of in that space where things are being revealed again. And I thought I nailed this down. But it's not yet here. Do you know what I mean? It's here, and it's emotional, and it hurts, and I'm confused. And yet, he's let me say these things to you and to myself by faith because I know they're true. Sometimes we just have to start moving before the effects of it catches up to us. My sense tonight is that there are many in here experiencing all kinds of things. And I know this is a little bit weird and I'm not supposed to share it yet, but I do sense there's some family stuff going on. In the sense, I don't know if it's your own personal family or this community family, but God just wants to push you forward into the next season. No more obstacles, nothing holding you back. Wants to make you people who are resilient and faithful in this coming season. Your finances, man, I was praying about that for freaking months. I thought we're going to have to absorb Van City, and that will be exciting. But also sad, you know what I mean, in all the right ways. Because I just thought, I know, God, how are you going to provide for these? I mean, begging God, please just provide. That's a miracle. I mean, that's a miracle. I I mean, literally, like, going, okay, what happens next? And you know, i got some jobs for some people <laughs> if we need it. I don't know. And I, it's horrible to even think that way, but I'm going, God, and he was like, trust me. Trust me. Sure enough, sure shooting. He's just providing the socks off this place and more, amen? More. And increase and more. Because there needs to be more who are in here learning and growing and trusting Jesus. These people, your neighbors, all of them, and they need you. It's not one of these people. It's not two of these people. It's not, you have an amazing team, but it is not them. It's you. So I just wonder if God's doing a new work here 
But it's got to start with us revealing what's uncomfortable and hard and wrestling through that honestly within ourselves and with each other. Moving into a place where God can reorient us and push us into a space of revival. That has been my prayer for you as I prepared for this. And honestly, selfishly, I'm like, and me too. God, and me too. I'm desperate. I need a new revival in my life, a new depth of intimacy with God, a new perspective that I can't yet see. Me too, God. Me too. Would you stand? We're going to pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.